I learned a lot. If you fell off sideways, you landed on the damp, uh, the darn cement over there. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. And he ran a bunch of bad boys. One of the things you had to use, if you used pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. All right. My guest today, he's a stand-up comedian, a singer-songwriter. He's got four albums. He's also an actor, having been on one of the funniest shows on TV, Silicon Valley, on HBO. And he has written and starred in two semi-autobiographical movies, Punching the Clown and Punching Henry, and both of those are available on Amazon Prime. And you can currently see him on several different web series, including The Highwayman and his cooking show, Henry's Kitchen. And you can support him on Patreon, and you can check out his YouTube channel it's at youtube.com backslash hen lips and i'll uh put a link to that in the description and you can check him out at henryphillips.com and ironically enough he goes by the same name henry phillips welcome <laughs> hey thanks mike wow that intro sounded really good i gotta get a copy of that i was like you pretty much just nailed everything and it's like wow i've done a lot of stuff i mean i am in my 50s now but still it sounded pretty cool <laughs> it's always good when i can impress the person whose credits they are yeah right i was like yeah because it's so hard to write a bio i'm like i don't know what to put in there or whatever but that pretty much nailed it that was great thanks <laughs> isn't that the worst coming up with mm -hmm. an intro when like the mc comes up to you and asks you for your intro i oh. it's the worst i just usually give them my name when they ask me i would rather they just find something <laughs> to oh say, yeah Oh. No, yeah, those are always awkward. And then uh, what was the one somebody told me about how the, the MC was just making up credits like it was, I think, at the Boston uh, Comedy Festival or something. The MC just said uh, this next person, you've seen him on uh, Comedy Central's premium blend. Give it up for whatever. And it wasn't true. <laughs> But it turns out the people from Comedy Central were there and they got upset that the comic was using that as an intro. And he's like, I've never told anybody I was on there at all. This guy just made it up. So it made him look like a dick, you know, <laughs> hilarious. Oh, my gosh. I've never heard of anybody getting busted for an intro. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it'd be weird for them to bust him anyway. But the fact that he didn't it wasn't even his idea to say it. <laughs> Oh man, there's so, you just reminded me of so many great intro stories. The other one was uh, Jeff Tate. You know Jeff Tate? I uh, know the uh, name. Comic out of Ohio. He's great. And uh, but he uh, was doing a show in Dayton, Ohio, and uh, the MC was like, uh, "Yeah, what do you want for your intro?" And he's like, "Just say Craig Ferguson." <laughs> and the guy's like, "All right." And so so then the guy brings him up. Okay, everybody, your next comic coming to the stage is Craig Ferguson. <laughs> <laughs> It was a guy who had never even heard of Craig Ferguson. Oh, man. Oh gosh. He didn't give him the real name at all? Well, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but um, oh. yeah, there's so many, so many good ones. <laughs> I love it. How long have you been doing stand-up for? Uh, well, I guess it was about 94, maybe even a little earlier that I started going around LA and doing these, uh, mostly comedy sketch type shows. And I would, I would go up in the middle of like a sketch troupe and start doing that for like 14 people in these little, it was a place called the Upfront Comedy Club. And there was hardly ever any audience, but man, the people behind the stage, I mean, Bob Odenkirk was always hanging out and Ryan Styles and just like all these you know, Farley came in one time and uh, yeah, it was oh insane, you know, wow. but never anybody, never anybody in the audience. They were like ha having to bark to, to get people to come in and watch the shows. But the, the level of talent on the stage was just unbelievable. But I started in that environment and I started learning uh, how fun it is to get laughs with. And I started with my songs and then that just became doing the improv comedy club there and then doing my own shows at the music clubs. And uh, eventually, uh, Comics started bringing me out as their opening act. Doug Stanhope, Drew Hastings. Then I met Bob and Tom. Then it was on from there. And then I met you somewhere after that when we were doing all those tours and stuff. Um, yeah. And I became a professional road comedian. <laughs> That's true. I I believe uh, you were nice enough to listen to my drunken ramblings. I believe. Oh yeah. Yes. Well, partially drunken because you could only have three percent alcohol, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. It probably saved my my life that weekend but um yeah that was a 
lot of fun. I remember that being a particularly great time. I mean, the whole tour that we did then was, was that 2004 or five, something like that? Or something. A little yeah. later. Yeah. It was a while ago. And uh, it was a blast. We went to some great, huge place afterward with the people from the radio and stuff. Yeah. That was a good time. Yeah, it was. And you were doing, you guys were doing like theaters and everything everywhere. You guys were selling yeah. out everywhere. How was that? Uh, it was amazing. You know, it, it was, it was a little taste of what it, what it's like. I mean, obviously the name on the marquee was Bob and Tom. It was friends of the Bob and Tom. It, it didn't feel like any of us individually were drawing a thousand people, but it was still, we were playing for a thousand people and we were putting on a good show. So it was, it was a little taste of the big time. You know, it's like going into a town doing one night and then going going to another sometimes flying the next morning to another town like that was new to me to fly in and out of a town within 24 hours you know because usually it'd be the club you know for a week or whatever right but uh i i liked it a lot and i and i especially liked it because i was working with such good friends Berbiglia, mike mccray greg warren augie smith and we we all had a blast i think looking back though i like the clubs better really I like comedy clubs yeah i love the idea of just walking up to the bar getting a beer and then just sort of wait watching the feature act and then walking up and doing my thing in front of a more intimate environment you know where you can see people's faces and you can find out if you know if they're responding or not and then tweak your show and you just feel a little more comfortable being experimental up there i don't know um the big theater stuff felt a little uh just a little cold for me for the for you know, like, I mean, heavy metal works great in an arena environment, you know, but I don't know about comedy. I mean, it works. I mean, I saw Louie at the forum, which was 15,000 people, which was unbelievable. And it definitely works. But I just think in a comedy club, it's just a little bit more, uh, more my cup of tea. Is it because do you have to change anything? Because the laughter, you're in a much bigger room. So the laughter maybe takes a, a couple extra seconds to get to you. Do you have to slow everything yeah. down? Well, you have what, one thing that I was doing is I was picking the best of the best, the tried and true. I wasn't doing any experimenting up there. I was like, there's too many people here. They paid too much. I'm going to do the triple A set, you know, the, the stuff that I know works. Whereas at the club, you might be like, all right, here's a new song I wrote last week. It may or may not go over, but I can bail on it if it doesn't. So there, there was a little less freedom that way. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you have a critical mass of laughter, but for all you know, I mean, if you've got a thousand people in that audience, <laughs> there there could be only 300 people laughing and you're still going to hear a big laugh, but you don't really know how well you're doing. You know, I'm, I'm sure people that are more experienced with doing theaters have a much better gauge of it. But for me, I was kind of like, you know, I, I think this is going well. It's a little harder to tell. That's interesting. But the music, I would think that with the music, you would feel more comfortable in a theater oh, yeah. environment. Yeah. Yeah. Once I picked up the guitar, uh, it started feeling a little bit more like a concert and that that helped, you know. But, you know, I started doing stand up for the first 10 minutes of 10 or 15 minutes of my sets. And uh, that was by design because I was being booked on comedy shows. and I didn't want the audience to see the guitar and suddenly feel like, oh, now it's OK to go to the bathroom or whatever. You know, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that they knew it. we're still doing a comedy show here and, and starting with the stand-up was essential to that but you're right yeah once i picked up the guitar everything felt a little bit more like a live music show and that was fun yeah but okay. i but again I, I had to pick the songs that were the more uh high energy ones which aren't always my favorite you know but they were the ones that the audience could sing along to and then they, there was some participation and stuff like that but i couldn't really do the weird stuff as much do you notice do you have to do because it was the bob and tom tour do you have to do the songs that you have performed on Bob and Tom? Uh, I didn't have to, but I did because I wanted to have the best shows possible. But yeah, I know I that was just by choice. You know, I, if I wanted to, I could go up there and not but that, that just felt like that would be a weird choice. Yeah, I'd be like if you watch a, a band and they're just doing their new stuff and not doing the songs that you're they're famous for, you know. So yeah, yeah I was doing yeah you know, the the bitch song and the, the girlfriend song and the talking again song. There's a little bit of a theme going on here, but uh, yeah, the guitar pill. But yeah, yeah, I was trying to keep it uh, stuff that they'd be familiar with. The bitch song is just amazing. It's a uh, it's kind oh, of thanks. a take on the uh, Billy Joel, right? Yeah. She never was abused when she was younger Her father never up and ran away And even though her family gave her all the love she needs 
somehow she's a bitch anyway. <laughs> Me, I tried to be the perfect hero. Yeah, it's because he's got that that sort of sappy song about, you know, she lies and cheats and steals, but she's always a woman to me. And so I was like, what if you do the reverse of that, where it's like, well, she grew up in a great neighborhood, had a nice family and everything seems pretty good, except for whatever reason, she's a bitch and I can't figure it out. <laughs> and uh, I also used a really sort of a sweet melody that I had written before I was even a comedian. So I kind of clashed those two items together, the, the lyrics with the song that was a lot more kind of soft and sort of easy listening and that kind of creates the irony there you know right which yeah. i like I, I love i love that presentation you know it starts out as a really beautiful song <laughs> yeah. and it's like it almost sounds real sweet it's like a, it's like a musical version of deep thoughts you know which deep thoughts was always my favorite on snl because it's like oh this is a nice poem and it's got a little bit of presentation like we're gonna hear some beautiful poem yeah and then it would take that turn <laughs> right. those were always my favorite <laughs> right another one because i think so the day you were on bob and tom i was i think a senior and i just happened to ditch school that day and me and my friends we were listening to you and you played the i I think it was jerking around mm -hmm. and you know we were oh, yeah. <laughs> high school kids and that became like our anthem for the rest of oh the yeah i read the front page headlines this morning there was a study with bad news to tell suddenly all of life's favorite pastimes hobbies and pleasures are bad for your health coffee's addictive wine makes you sterile Fat makes your heart stop, sex even kills. One box of popcorn can wipe out a family. Well, so much for all of life's favorite thrills. But this is the good part, one of these pastimes, formerly chided and ridden with shame. Studies have shown that despite all the hoopla, effects from this vice are surprisingly tame. It has many a name. Choking the chicken, beating the bishop, pumping the python, jerking around, flogging the donkey, jerking the gherkin, milking the mango, and punching the clown. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, but it also has insecticides that cause carcinoma. Yeah, it was like, that's about the age where you finally start laughing about it. Like before that, you're kind of uncomfortable with it. But then it's like, okay, I think we can finally laugh. at. We can finally look at like jerking off as one of the funniest phenomenons that happens in the male universe. Yeah. Right, right. Oh my gosh. And the, the, the amount of, I guess, what do you call them? Metaphors in it? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. They're incredible. Like I, I, we hadn't heard probably 90% of them. And so it was just made. Oh yeah. You know? Well, that was care of the uh, the slang dictionary or whatever it was back then. I guess I guess I was I don't know. I wrote that pretty early on. That was in the nineties, ninety six or something. So can't remember if I accessed the internet or if I actually like went to the library or something <laughs> like look for the slang dictionary. But yeah, I had to collect them all. So that's and, how you found all those? Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't have them uh, at the ready. But uh, yeah, and there were a lot of them that I hadn't even heard of. <laughs> They're so good. So good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so so you said it st the bitch song, it started out as like a serious song. So you were doing yeah. that before you were writing the funny songs. Yeah. Were you out performing oh, yeah. stuff? My whole life, I wanted to be a musician. And throughout my teens, I played guitar nonstop, you know, hours every day. And uh, I, I kind of realized that the rock star thing was a, a really, it's like winning the lottery. I mean, I knew even at a young age that was going to be a tough pursuit, but I thought maybe I could be one of these studio musicians, you know, where they hire a guitar player to come in, like Steve Lukather, you know, it's like, oh, we're doing a Michael Jackson song. Can you come in and lay down the guitar? We'll give you a thousand dollars or whatever. I was like, that seems like that would be a cool life. And I got pretty good on the guitar. But even that, as it turns out, it was one of those businesses where there's 
there's five people that do it and one of them basically has to die before a new person can get in. It's just a real small hole at the end of the funnel there. And, you know, there's just too many people wanting to do the same thing. So I, I gave up on all of that, but um, I did have a lot of songs. I was really into the songwriting thing and I would perform them at open mic nights and stuff, but that wasn't really going anywhere either. And then I started getting really into school. I went to, uh, got all my credits up with community colleges and stuff. And then I went to UCLA. Actually, I went to BYU for a little stint there for one semester. Really? A lot, of, Yeah, which is really interesting. I, uh, I had a lot of friends that were LDS and uh, they said, you know, there's not everybody in the school is Mormon. And, and they, these were good friends of mine at the time. I mean, yeah, there was about a 5% population of people that weren't. And then, of course, and, and, and people weren't very aggressive about it. They're like, all right, you're not. That's cool. And there were a couple people that were a little bit judgmental about it. But otherwise, I actually really thought it was a pretty great school. It was a beautiful campus. I had good friends there. It just, in the, in the long run, it, it just kind of came down to, you know, it wasn't for me. And then I got accepted to UCLA and went back to UCLA. But these were all friends of mine from high school that I'm still friends with now to this day. But uh, And a couple of them came to the Bob and Tom show that night, too. But yeah, so... Um, so then I, yeah, I got a degree and, uh, oh yeah. And then the last year of college, I started, uh, hanging out at this place called the Upfront Comedy Club where my buddy was a musician and he talked me into going up and doing one of my songs in the middle of the sketch troupe thing. And it went well. And then I was just like, all right, I think I'm, I'm hooked. And, and it was weird. Cause I was like, wow, in a weird way, I'm kind of getting that that rock star dream that I wanted, but it's not exactly the way I envisioned it, but I can do albums now. I can do live performances. I've got my guitar. I can do photo shoots, interviews and everything. I was like, I'm, I'm doing it. And so it was pretty cool. I, I was like, I'm kind of getting my dream, but in a kind of weird way, you know? Yes. Uh, that's cool. What yeah. did you study in college? Was it music? I was a political science major. Yeah. Nothing to do with music at all. I, <laughs> I think I, I had given up on investing in music. I, I, I had done a lot of musical classes, uh, private school, uh, private studying, and also uh, went to a school called Dick Grove School of Music to learn harmony and some stuff. So I already had a pretty good education for music, but I just felt like if I'm going to go to school, I'm going to try to get a degree in something that I know nothing about, just so that I come out learning something. And so it was good. You know, I had a good little community of friends there. And that's actually where I met uh, the director of the movies, Greg Pienz he and I would sit next to each other in a lot of these political science classes. And then he wanted to become a filmmaker and I was becoming a comic in that last year. And we remained friends. And, you know, when people started making their own movies, he just finally showed up to my door one time. He said, Hey man, we got to make this, this movie. You've got all these stories of, you know, shitty things that happen to you on the road and we got to string them all together and make a movie and i was like well let's do it so we had a couple of attempts in the mid-2000s that didn't quite work out and then all of a sudden we did one where we started shooting and we, we did like a 21 day shoot and had all the actors and locations in place took a few months to edit it got in the film festivals and all of a sudden we had a movie you know and uh but that was yeah it, that was just because greg and i became friends sitting there at ucla it was interesting Wow. Was that punching the clown? Yeah. So did you already have it written or did you guys write it together? Uh, we wrote it together. I, I even like somewhere I posted uh, the original outline of it, which is fun because it's all scrawled. We weren't even using computers back then. But so in the 90s, he was a film student. He, after UCLA, he went to uh, study film at uh, Syracuse University. And so for his final project, he did a little 35, uh, I'm sorry, 16 millimeter film, sort of a mockumentary because that was the big thing at the time, the spinal tap thing, waiting for Guffman and all that. And so, yeah, we made one. It was called Punching the Clown, a portrait of Henry Phillips. And it was like a pretty much a 30 minute sort of prototype of what would eventually be the movie. And we always talked about how we wanted to do something with it, but it just seemed impossible to try to pitch it to anybody. It, it needed connections. You needed famous people and all that stuff. But when all that changed, finally... Because he, he became a film professor at UCLA again, actually. He showed up to my door and he's like, listen, my students are making movies with their HD cameras. And I didn't, you know, learn film because I wanted to teach it. I want to make it. So if we just hammer out this script, you know, we'll get a producer. We'll get all of these things in place. I'll borrow money. He, he wound up spending most of his life savings at that time on, on the movie. Yeah, I mean, and borrowing money from family. I borrowed money from some cousins of mine that actually... 
actually have some money at, which was really nice. And yeah, yeah I mean, they're never, never going to see the money again, unfortunately, because it just, it, I think the movie wound up making about a quarter of what it cost, which was about a hundred thousand dollars. And um, that was because it eventually got on Netflix and that was the best paying one. They were paying like four grand every quarter or something like that. And, it was on there for a couple of years, but yeah, it, it didn't make any money, but it um, felt really fun to do when we were doing it. And I, I, I'm trying to remember what was the last thing you asked me? Cause I feel like I rambled into a different thing there. Oh yeah. About the script. Yeah. yeah so we, we wrote down an outline. It's like, okay, Henry comes in from someplace on the road to stay with his brother in LA because he hits hard times. His brother tries to set him up with a manager manager sets him up in an open mic night, but they were all, how do we get to this bit? You know, how do we get to that double booking thing where there was like the Christian fundraiser and the, and booking me as the comic. And we had all these stories that were based on true stories. You know, like I had, you know, a manager at one point who's like, we got to come up with what your catchphrase or what your branding is going to be. And I was thinking, you know, uh, James Taylor on smack. And I was like, <laughs> I think that a uh, James Taylor actually was on smack. So that's not, you know, <laughs> no. it's not saying anything. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there was a lot of things like that. There was also like the uh, club owner that I worked for one time that we had a deal that I was going to get $4 for every patron. And uh, it turned out he gave me $14. And I'm just like, what? there was 30 people in there. And it's like, but also $14 isn't even divisible by $4. Like right. if you said 12, at least it would make some mathematical sense. But you, it's so obvious that you're just making up a random random amount of money, $14, $4 a head. So there were all these stories like that. So that one, we, we got Eddie Pepitone and he, uh, he did that bit with us. And uh, for people out there, if you have Amazon, you can watch Punching the Clown uh, to know what we're talking about. It's on there. It's and it, and it, it was it was really fun for me because then I started showing up to cities like New York and San Francisco where I didn't necessarily always get the best street cred because I was just a guy who did the road with a guitar or whatever. But then people started going, hey, man, I saw your movie and everything. And it was like, wow, this is cool. It was a whole different level of admiration for my peers which i think we all want you know it's like yeah. it, you know sure it's 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 nice to be able to make a paycheck but also we want to make sure that the people who do what we do admire what you do you know and, th and the movie was the first time i started feeling that way i mean i had little bits of that prior to that but i think when the movie came out it, it suddenly became it started feeling like oh i've done something that resonates with comics now and that felt that felt pretty good yeah I imagine it did. And did, was it that one that won the awards or was it Punching Henry? Yeah. Uh, the, Slam Dance? The, the first one. Yeah. The first one won the audience award at Slam Dance, which was the alternative version of Sundance. And it was at the same time. And we did a whole bunch of festivals through that time. We were all over the place. But yeah, Park City, of course, it was 2009. So all we heard from everybody was, uh, you know, if you guys were here a year ago, you would have sold this thing for $500,000. But now that the economy crashed or whatever, it was it was right in the beginning of all that crap. And and, you know, walking around Park City, there were a lot of people missing. You know, it was like only half the audiences for everything. But the movie did really well there. And then we got into a bunch of other festivals. But yeah, it was it was that classic thing. It's like when you go to your buddy's party and it sucks. And they're like, oh, dude, last week we had naked girls. We had all, you know, David Tell showed up, you know. And it's just like, damn. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So how does that work? You make a movie on your guys' dime, on you and your buddy's yeah. dime. And then you'd submit them to film festivals. Yeah. And try to get, you're trying to get a distributor and, uh, and we did eventually, but it was just real small time money. And all they really did was got us on Netflix, which prior to like a couple years before that, it would just be the filmmaker would get something on Netflix. So instead we're splitting literally all the money with the distributor. And it's like, why do we need that guy? You know, it's some, some person in the middle, but that's what happens with all these things. It's like colleges, you know, it used to be that colleges, would hire their favorite comedians and then all of these agents kind of got in the middle and now you have to do the big convention and all this other stuff you know yeah so how does that work once you get it on netflix do they go off of views or does do you just have a negotiated well, thing before 
uh, yeah, they negotiated a, a rate probably based on whatever we could muster. You know, the distributor probably said, hey, look, it won a bunch of awards, festivals, audience award. People like it. it you know, they, they probably showed a bunch of reviews. That's really all we had. We didn't have celebrities or anything. So they probably said, OK, well, we'll license it from you for whatever it is, eight grand every quarter. And of course, that was split in half with the distributor. So that went for a couple of years and then they dropped it. And even though the reviews were fantastic, people were loving it. I was getting recognized in the streets. It was crazy. And then, uh, yeah, but they dropped it. And I think because Netflix became so big, so corporate, that a little movie like that, it's like, well, it's not attached to one of the distributors that we normally do stuff with. Um, There's other distributors that are going in there and saying, hey, we'll give you 10 movies and we can negotiate that way. Yeah. And here we are just one lone movie. And they're just like, it's not worth the money that we're paying. It's not worth the bandwidth. I I never understood why. Well, I guess it was a little bit of a cost to them, but uh, it was a bummer. Yeah. It was definitely a bummer that they took it off um, because that, that was going well, but you know, it's on Amazon now and uh, anybody can watch it. It generates, I think about $10 every three months or something like that. So that's cool. (laughs) Hey, that's that F you money, you know? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) We have to split it up among 60 people, but you know, it's not bad. (laughs) Was anybody, because the movies, they are, that's like you said, a bunch of like road stories. Yeah. Uh, compiled into one. Was anybody upset thinking that maybe one of the stories was about them? Was anybody pissed off at you? Uh, you know what? That's a great, that's a great question. I was always worried. I, I have a lot. We have the, the character, stupid Joe, who is yeah. the, uh, <laughs> the guy who does the parody songs and it's always dirty, you know, wasting away in diarrhea, Bill. He'll just take, take a song and just make it something and stupid. Kills, of course. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, and my buddy, Mark Cohen played that part. And, but he kind of does that in his act, but it's, it's so good when he does it. And it's so stupid that it's funny, right. but, um, but it, it wasn't until, I mean, Mark's one of my best friends. It wasn't until a few months after the movie and we'd screened it a few times. He goes, hey, wait a second. I'm pretty much just doing my act and you're making me the asshole in the movie. <laughs> I'm like, well, no. It, and I had a lot of friends that I had uh, on the road uh, that, that were guitar comics that would do straight ahead parodies like that. And they're like, hey, what's wrong with guitar comics? And I'm like, listen, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, anything goes when you're on stage. If you can make people laugh, then you're doing fine. Yeah. I'm just saying that for me to try to go up there and do some really dry kind of subtle thing, it's almost impossible to do after a guy has done this parody type stuff. I'm really just sort of trying to point out the difficulties that I have. I'm not trying trying to take down other people and whatever their act is. In the second movie, there is a, uh, a running theme about uh, Stupid Joe writing a song. Uh, and he keeps changing it to try to market it to different. He's like, Hey, apparently Christian rock is a big thing. So I'm going to change my song to a Christian thing, you know? And then it's like, Oh, Pepsi's looking for something. I'm going to change it to a Pepsi thing. And so I had a buddy who would do that every time I saw him, he's just like, you know, the song was like, you know, Hey, let's satisfy your satisfaction or whatever. He's like, what do you think? Pepsify your Pepsification. And uh, I was just like, hey, man, but it was just so funny that he's like, I will sell to the highest bidder. I do not care about what the integrity of this song. I'll sell it to Christian, Muslim, whoever wants to buy this thing. Right. And so, yeah, so that was a fun gag in the second movie. But uh, that that's based on a real guy. And I did run into that guy at the park one time. He was walking his dog and uh, he had no idea. He had no idea that there was a he said, hey, man, I saw the movie. I enjoyed it. He never brought up the fact that there's this whole running bit that's totally based on him and it, it was really uh you know it i'm not even putting him down in there but I, I i was a little insecure i was like oh man if he watches the movie is he gonna feel like i'm making fun of him but didn't even occur to him we changed the name and the tune of the song and stuff like that we just kept the bit you know but um yeah so there were a few little things like that but not too many. I mean, I'm, I'm a really sort of an insecure person. So I go out of the way. Well, like at the end of the first movie, there's a line in there, which I love that I didn't write. My friend Tracy Smith said it. Tracy Smith's big on the Bob and Tom show too. And where we were at the improv one night and I said, so whatever happened to your thing that you were going to do with the Paramount or whatever? And she goes, oh, 
nothing. But by the way, don't ever start a question in the entertainment business with whatever happened to your playing, because obviously it's not good. You know? right. <laughs> and so I thought that was really funny and it was good advice. And so we put it in the movie, but I was not going to put it in the movie without calling Tracy first. And so I said, hey, you know, you said something funny once 10 years ago. Do you mind if we put that in the movie? And I'll give you special thanks, you know, at the end. And she's like, absolutely go for it. But yeah, I, I do not want to be somebody who's just taking things that came out of other people's brains and putting them in our movie, you know? Right. So yeah, I'm, I'm really overly insecure about that type of stuff. So it's pretty, pretty rare that there was something that I felt like might offend some people. That's good that you are conscious of that because I, I know being a comic and working with a bunch of different guys, I think that at least they think that happens a lot where someone's using their yeah. brain, you know, in a movie or something and then they get no credit for it or anything. Yeah, well, I think it happened to me. I mean, there's no way to ever prove it, right? Exactly, so, yeah. But but I I do remember in, in, our, in that original thing that Greg and I made way back in 1996, we he had a whole scene where there was a French guy who I was tutoring and he was trying to tell me that his, that when he was taking his driving test, another guy cheated on the exam. And it was on, it was based on a true story of me talking to a French English second language student that I had, but he kept on going, this guy shit on his exam. He shits. And he was trying to say cheat. And I'm like, what do you mean he shit? You know, it's like, but anyway, you know, we had screenings in like the AFI Film Festival in LA, Taos, New Mexico and all the stuff. So like three years later, there's the exact same scene is in a Tom Hanks movie, The Terminal. And I was just like, this feels a little weird because that's based on a real thing that happened to me. And it's like, I've never heard anybody else say that that happened to them. And it turns out the screenwriter was actually a UCLA graduate. And that's where we went to school and used to screen the movie a lot there. And so I don't know. I think you might have a case there. You guys screened it at UCLA. This guy's from UCLA and more than a hundred percent likely he saw the movie, right? I think so. Or it could be something like, uh, some producer might have on the set said, Hey, this, this really needs a little more comedy. I think a fun bit would be, and they don't even, they fail to mention that they saw it at a comedy festival a couple of years. It's also nebulous, but you can't really sue for that because you can't prove that that person didn't come up with it. And also like you, you can copyright a song, you know, and I, I guess you can copyright a lot of content, but jokes or just dot pieces of dialogue, they don't really, you can't really copyright those. But since you guys made it three years before, you that mm-hmm. would you don't think that would I mean because you kept the no. proof in the movie being made, no? No, you you can't copyright you can't copyright a joke. That that's why yeah that's why people with jokes all it is is just comics bad mouth the guy. Otherwise there would have been a lot a lot of lawsuits about that. But uh, yeah, I remember the whole thing with Dane Cook and Louis C.K. and they had all those yeah. YouTube clips where they're doing the same bit back and back. And, right. um, yeah, you can't you can copyright a work. You can copyright a song, music. Uh, but yeah, dialogue and jokes are just a little too difficult to define. Well, there used to be a thing uh, where people would compile joke books and they would just take uh, jokes from comedians and oh. wouldn't pay for them. Yeah, finally, Jay Leno uh, sued on behalf of all the comedians. And I think he won because... Oh, that's but that, awesome. That was, yeah, that was where I, I think he won. I'm not sure, but uh, I, I know it's always been a little bit of a point of contention. But a song, absolutely. If you can prove that somebody put the same chords to the same melody, you can sue over that. But jokes and pieces of conversation, because somebody can just easily say, well, I had that whole conversation happen to me and I put it in there, you know? Yeah. Dang, that sucks. Yeah, yeah, it's rough, but I think it happens all the time. I've had it happen when I'm watching a movie and I go, well, this is the same as this. They're doing the same scene from an old Woody Allen movie, you know, and you just have to hope that enough people, you know, I've even heard of screenwriters. Well, the classic was uh, the show Cheers, which we all love. I mean, it was an amazing show, but every show just had an onslaught of just the best jokes, like such good jokes. Yeah. But apparently those writers would go to the Ice House and some of these comedy clubs back in the 80s and they would just write down all the jokes that the comics were saying and then just pepper their script with it as a punch up. 
and not give yeah. not give the comic no not nothing. not oh. at all and there's screenwriters that are known to watch comedy central and just watch jokes just because they save money on getting a guy to punch it up so they uh yeah there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on it's just awful it is but it oh. just comes down to personal integrity that some people have well you've heard all the snl things you know when people have that job they're so happy to have the job they're under so much pressure to produce stuff and jay moore even admitted in his book that he used to steal stuff from these local sketch guys he apologized about it but he's like yeah you're under the gun and i i wouldn't do it some people uh success is a little more important to them so they don't really care <laughs> right yeah but that's a tough thing i didn't know he fessed up to it I, that's a tough thing to admit yeah he wrote it and he wrote like an autobiography and he even said in there that uh yeah i uh short on ideas and there was a sketch group that i had worked with and they had a bit and i just basically submitted it as an snl bit but also, there, there's been another a few other comics that uh, have done jokes that were popular around town. I mean, that that happens, you know. So comics aren't necessarily being paranoid when they are afraid of that. It's best to just get it on tape right away. That way, you can go to YouTube and say, "Hey, here's me doing the bit a month before." Now, there are obviously coincidences also, so that's the part you have to determine. But what I think is like the more years that go by and you haven't seen the joke pop up with other comics, like like the Louis C.K. and Dane Cook stuff, it starts looking more and more coincidental. You're like, so within the same couple of months, these two guys are going around doing the same bits, three different ones. It's a little, it starts becoming a little obvious that Dane probably was watching Louis a lot and it just got absorbed into his act because otherwise, five years later, there might have been somebody who had a same bit, but it's always in that same area of time and it just looks a little too convenient, you know? This terminal thing, it's like really just three years after we put out our movie, then we see it. That's exactly the amount of time it takes for somebody to see it, put it in a screenplay, get the movie made, you know? That does, that actually checks out. Yeah. That's like, yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh, that sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh. I know. There was, you know, who was another one that I always heard stories about, and then they kind of died off when he passed away was Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah, and the Mark Marin show. He said, absolutely. That was a really good interview because he was so honest, and he was even honest about that. He goes, I, I got to a point where I couldn't go watch other comics because it would just, my brain would just spit it out right in the middle of my act because it was the instinct the knee-jerk reaction to make people laugh and you're going to use whatever tools you have and his one of his tools was a funny joke that he heard three nights ago and apparently he would pay the comics like they would come forward and say hey man you did my bit on tv and he had it all set up to give him money you know because he felt bad about it but oh, uh well at least he at least he got oh, yeah. a little compensation he did not deny that at all wow I don't, that was on Mark Marin. I don't think I heard that one. Oh, it's really good. Yeah, the Robin Williams Mark Marin episode is fantastic. That's what kind of got me hooked on it. Mm, okay. Um, he addresses it, and then they kind of, there's so much more interesting stuff to talk about. They just kind of went into other stuff. That's pretty interesting. And again, that's, that's something that's got to be excruciating to yeah. say out loud and admit to. But you did, okay, so back to the back to your movies. You did mm -hmm. a lot of your songs. So how does that work? Do you have the songs licensed? Yeah, the songs I actually got paid for on uh, mostly on the second movie because that was on Showtime for a while. So that that they have to pay royalties on that. And that's a little bit more cut and dry. So yeah, I've got about seven or eight songs in each movie. And um, the internet stuff pays much, much less. I mean, not it's, it's almost nothing. But yeah, for a little while, the second movie was on Showtime. And they had to pay for the ability to use those songs. So you were you getting double? Were you getting royalties from the acting? And the I wasn't getting them as an actor. I don't ten, know why. The ten bucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. I did, ne never got anything for the acting. Yeah, I, I think that's problematic. There were a lot of weird things that happened with that. But the music is handled through BMI, which is a whole different system. And they, they were on top of it. They're a pretty big uh, record label, right? Yeah, well, the way that they work. Well, no, they, they are a, um, they distribute money. Or distributor, to, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what they do is, they, they have a big pile of money that every year they or every quarter or whatever they divvy out to whoever's music was logged in a in a work that was aired on TV. So it's the same amount of the big pie is the same every three months, but 
who gets it is based on whatever their log sheets say, you know? So if you're getting played on the radio or if you're getting played on TV, they give you a portion of that pie. So it's an interesting system, but mm. yeah, radio stations always have to pay BMI to contribute to that amount of money. TV stations always do too. So yeah, when I would go on like late night where I did Jimmy Kimmel or I did a half hour special with Comedy Central where I did all my songs, I got a little bit of extra because they were using the music. So that was pretty cool. Oh, wow. <laughs> I didn't know that worked like that for comics. That's awesome. Yeah. And then you get it every time they play. So the Comedy Central thing was pretty good. Oh, okay. You don't have to say specifics for Comedy Central. Do you get more for the music or for the comedy? Does that make uh, sense? Well, the comedy, yeah, it's just a lump sum in the beginning. And right. then the music happens over the next several years. I think it's about, it came out to about the same. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, still, it's double what it would have been if I was just doing stand-up. You know, how do you like doing because you did a half hour special on Comedy Central? I did. Yeah. So after that airs, do you notice like a bump in anything after that? Yeah, it, it was it was pretty difficult. I had I had a few things going against me. One, my opener and closer. I had already burned on premium blend and on some other shows. So that's, that's usually the comics strongest stuff, right? What you open with and what you close with. I couldn't use either of those. So that was difficult. So I, so I couldn't come out like gangbusters. And also I was following Dan Natterman, who is impossible to follow. That guy is just an unbelievable comic. And I was really nervous going on because he was just whipping that room into a frenzy. And then they put me on with my kind of dry, slow suck. Like we were talking about the bitch song kind of thing. Uh, I did premium blend and it killed because I was using the song that I was opening with at the time that it was always doing well. But then, um, yeah, the special, I, I, I wasn't able to, I had already burned through that. So I just kind of, you know, songs that I liked a lot, but they were part of a show that had an arc to it. So it was kind of weird to open up with like a slow song. So I, I don't think the half hour special annihilated the way, I mean, there were some people that had just made their careers and mine just, it was fine, but uh, I don't think that it was what what the movies did for example it was just a little bit tougher uh to build an audience because it didn't it didn't really match up with the comedy central audience as opposed to like nick swartz and i remember watching his special oh, so good and i was like that this is an instant star overnight star right now i i couldn't help but feel like i want to hang out with this guy and eventually i did hang out with the guy but it's like i, I was like this is uh i feel like i'm hanging out with that funny friend when you're playing video games who's just constantly cracks the funniest like it, it was just it was likable everything and and i could see how that special would turn him into like an overnight sensation you know yeah but yeah mine not, not so much yeah yeah <laughs> his first special was unreal the uh unbelievable yeah. the, the john stamos bit do you remember that one? Oh yeah yeah that was uh, great i i think about that probably weekly for the last 20 years oh yeah it was classic yeah <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to repeat it because i don't want to, but oh my gosh if you get a yeah, if anybody should, yeah, yeah, go watch Nick Swartz's first comedy special on Comedy Central. And they'll probably be like, well, a lot of this stuff has been used by other comics. It's like, yeah, but that's because they ripped it off. You know, it's like this, I mean, like the, the cadence, the premises, it's like he started a whole new thing, in my opinion. I, I, he did. I, he's, he's like the Eddie Van Halen of, uh, you know, comedy in the 90s. You know, he just like started a whole new thing. I started hearing uh, commercials where the, the actors started sounding a little bit like Nick Swartz and, you know, it's it's like it was a huge influence, you know? Yeah. You know who else was, I noticed, was David Tell. A oh, lot of yeah. comics tried to, you know, his uh, oh, yeah. his, his delivery. Like, That's right. Everything, yeah. Well, yeah, and it, it happens naturally. Like, if you're if you're a comic who's opening for David Tell for a week, after a while, you start talking like him. It's like, yeah. it's, it's very difficult. I mean, that happens with a lot of comics. Like, you, I worked with Hedberg for a week, and it was hard for me not to... <laughs> sound like him when it was just talking you know just even in conversation yes yeah there's tough. some people that just have that infectious cadence you know yeah, yeah tell tell is just one of the masters of greatest jokes ever i think when he was doing um insomniac and he would go around yeah in the town he would do you know he would do like a 15 20 minute set and then they would cut it down to a minute or whatever for the show but i don't think i've laughed harder in a 15 minute stretch than seeing oh, him yeah. do that a couple times he was incredible and he's he really a lot smaller yeah, yeah. than you think than he looks <laughs> that's right yeah <laughs> yeah that's true huh okay 
So uh, actually, I didn't ask you how the second movie, Punching Henry, how, so how did that one come about? So that was a follow-up. I mean, we had this movie that did well in festivals and it was uh, sort of a calling card. There were people in high places that were fans of it. Sarah Silverman was a fan of the first movie and so was Mike Judge and uh, a few other people. And so we started writing a second script and um, doing readings of it. And we got it to a studio called Whitewater Films and they were able to put together the funding with some investors. And it was about five times the budget the first movie and part of that is you try to get people that are more well known so Sarah agreed to do it which was great also J.K. Simmons liked the script a lot and uh, I knew Mike Judge was a fan of the first movie and uh, he had said you know hey if there's anything I could do to help that would be great and he agreed to do a part in it and also I said hey you know you did a movie with J.K. Simmons he's kind of halfway interested do you mind putting in a word and he did he wrote a really nice email to J.K. Simmons and that was it J.K. Simmons it was the push that we needed over the clip and then he was like yeah let's do it and then we had a, an Oscar winner in our movie so yeah it's fun uh, plus you know Doug Stanhope's in it and he just annihilates it I, I thought he was so funny and there's the cab dispatcher and, uh, <laughs> yeah. a lot of great comments Jim Jeffries you know Nikki Glaser Tig Nataro uh, probably leaving out a bunch of but yeah there's so many you know, it's great yeah it is a great cast so the other comics are they just your buddies basically uh, Greg Warren he had a little oh story. Greg Warren was yeah. fantastic in it yeah he does a great job at the end where he, he gives my intro and because he, he and I always joked about like the worst intros that people <laughs> give you you know like we talk talked about in the beginning of the show you know right. but like yeah there's a couple of things you know it's like turn off your phones this guy didn't come all the way from la so that you guys could be talking on your phones and it's like man it's making me sound like i'm the dick who's telling people this stuff you know so that was good that was and awesome. then uh and then you had uh who else uh, oh brennan walsh you know uh chris fairbanks is in there and uh there's so many other ones yeah, Dave Waits in there, Lynn Shockroft, uh, Sarah Talamash. Yeah, a lot of people from the comedy scene are in there. Yeah, there's a ton of them, and so that's pretty cool. So Mike Judge, he's the Beavis and Butthead guy and the Silicon Valley guy. Is that yeah, how yeah. you met him? Is that how the Silicon oh, yeah. Valley thing came about? Yeah, he was a fan of the movie, and then uh, he was like, can you do this part on Silicon Valley where it's basically, he's just like, all you have to do is act like yourself, mostly in my kitchen videos. I had one video go viral like 10 years ago called Henry's Chili for One. It was a kitchen video, and he loves that. He was like, can you just basically just do that character in the, in the, in the show? And I was like, absolutely. And it was something that I was comfortable doing. I don't think I would have been comfortable as an actor doing other stuff, but that one I could do. And so, yeah, that was absolutely a result of that stuff. Uh, that's awesome. So you got to do, so you pretty much came up with the character. I mean, that's all you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, they, they wrote it, but I, the idea to have me be the one doing it came from Mike Judge because of watching those kitchen videos. And apparently it, it was a nice little crossover because Mike has told me that he's been approached by people saying, oh, I like how you had the kitchen guy in, in the show. And then I've also had a lot of YouTube people who came from Silicon Valley and were like, oh, this is the Silicon Valley guy. So that's pretty cool that there's some crossover there. That is really um, cool. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I think the theme is that, you know, you just got to always be putting stuff out there because that that's a great example of, you know, I how something went from just doing something on YouTube to all of a sudden doing it on HBO, you know? Everything happens that way. Like, nothing happens if you're not putting stuff out there. Right. Is that hard joining? Because they were in, what, like four or five seasons before you came in. Is it hard? Yeah, I think it was the third season. I came in on the third oh, season. Third. okay. And, uh, yeah, and I was a fan of the show at that time. So I, mean, I, I, I loved the show, so I was like, oh, boy, I hope it's good because I don't want to be the guy <laughs> ruining the show that I like so much, you know? Right. So it was good. And you play, uh, you're like an IT, I guess we should tell people. I'm the guy, yeah, I'm the server. I'm the guy who watches over the servers in the server farm. So they've got these like Facebook and uh, Google and all these things. They have space that they rent out from these places. And it's as far as the eye can see of servers. You know, they have to be maintained at a certain temperature and they have to be extremely secure. And even like the building, like what I think the, the real one is held by spring so that even if you have earthquake 
out here, they would just sort of shake a little bit, but they wouldn't, you know, I mean, they're, they're so extremely important, right. um, but it's just kind of funny. And this is the Mike judge sense of humor that that whole thing is watched over by this guy. who's just like a middle-aged, you know, just kind of a antisocial type guy who walks around. I mean, you literally don't see daylight for days, you know? Oh, it's just brilliant. And Mike judge is the best king of the hill. Oh yeah. I think was the best show for its time. And then Silicon Valley. Okay, let me ask you this. Did you like Silicon Valley right off the bat the first time you watched it? Uh, yeah, yeah. The first, yeah. The, the pilot episode, I loved it. Yeah, there, there was a lot of great jokes in there. Uh, okay. It was introducing the characters. But yeah, there was a lot of classic Mike Judge stuff in there. Like, like, I think that's the one where they talked about every group of startup people had like five very specific types of people. There was like the Middle Eastern or the Indian guy. And then there's like the guy with the ponytail. And then there's like, <laughs> and then there was a lot of really funny, funny bits like that. But I mean, that's been, I think, seven years since I saw that. So yeah, I, I seem to remember liking it. And then when they closed with the final episode, that was just insane. You know, It's so good. But I remember not, I remember watching a few minutes of it and then giving up after just a couple minutes. I just wasn't into it. And then when yeah. I found out it was Mike Judge, then I came back to it and gave it a chance. Yeah, you got to realize that you're watching it from, from his perspective. Yes. And he's so good at uh, satirizing such major parts of our uh, society, you know, it's like office space, you know, with, with the cubicles, you know, uh, that was such a big thing in the late nineties. Uh, yeah. and then now the startup thing, you know, <laughs> Yes, uh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's good. It's kind of like the King of the Hill, but in Silicon Valley as a tech, Yeah, you know, it's kind of the same dynamic with the, uh, you know, the group of friends and it's brilliant. It's so it's good. great. Yeah. All right. So tell me this, uh, okay. You've been performing since the nineties, right? all the time mm -hmm. during the pandemic have you been performing at all no no i started doing uh my web series uh full on you know it's not so much because of the pandemic there there have been some opportunities that i could have had and i could have done some of these zoom shows or whatever but i mean when i turned 50 i was just like how interested am i in showing up to lax and flying out to god knows where for a week and you know i've got more things that i want to do here at home and so i set up patreon so that uh you know i'd have my Henry's Kitchen series and then this new one called The Highway Man. And between those two things, I'm able to earn a living and have the freedom, you know, to also do other projects if I want. I probably will be doing some touring in the fall, but I want it to be under my own circumstances. You know, I don't want to go out there to a club that's not offering me a great rate. And also I'm basically babysitting on the Friday, Saturday nights because everybody's so drunk. You know, it's just like, mm -hmm. that's, that's all fun when you're in your thirties and stuff like that. But I after a while, you're like, I just kind of want to go on to the next thing, you know? Right. But I love performing, so I'm sure I'll be getting out there and doing it. I'm talking about doing some shows in Wisconsin and also uh, St. Louis, so I'll be doing some. Oh, nice. Where uh, where in Wisconsin is it? Uh, Stevens Point. I know they make really good beer, so that part of it's going to be really cool. But, oh, uh, nice. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> that one's not officially on the books yet, but oh, we're, uh, I'm told to hold the date, so first week of November. Oh, First nice. Weekend. So how long yeah. has it been? Has it been a couple of years since you've done your uh, The last day I did, yeah, a year and a half. I did uh, Cape Girardeau, Missouri, and that was good. Yeah, there was a little comedy club there. Uh, the name's escaping me, but uh, yeah, it's good. Do you miss it or are you having so much fun doing the web series? Yeah, I'm not I'm not missing it at the moment. You know, I might eventually, but uh, no, at the moment, I've been really enjoying doing these web series. You know, it's, it's fun to get a small crew out there and go out and start shooting and making some jokes. And I'm using a lot of the comics that I meet, you know. My buddy Patrick Keene, uh, Francisco Ramos, uh, Brennan Walsh, Steve Byrne, Steve Gillespie. I don't know if you know him, but uh, there's been a lot of comics in it. And they are, they're hilarious. I was watching both of, I was watching Highwayman and uh, Henry's Kitchen last. Actually, my my son was watching one of the kitchen ones with me, the peanut butter and jelly. Where? Oh, that's great! Oh yeah! <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh, thanks. And yeah, we were we were dying. But so how did the Highwayman, is this kind of the same thing that you were able to get the movies with? The Highwayman was just uh, trying to come up with another outlet. I mean, the, the Henry's Kitchen, I had put it on Patreon and that's how that was able to keep going, which is fantastic. And then my wife actually texted me one time and she just said, uh, I've got your new web series. It's called The Highwayman. And it made me laugh so hard because I was just like, I, I'm just trying to picture one of those old shows. <laughs> 
like from the seventies, like the Hulk or Kung Fu or six million dollar man, where it's like a hero, but it's just me like going around on the highway trying to help people with their cars, but I don't know anything about cars, you know, and, and just getting into, you know, dumb situations. And yeah, we started shooting it. She's really good at uh production type stuff, so she helped out a lot. In the beginning I was high hiring a DP, but now I just shoot it myself. I just sort of set the camera up and so I've learned a lot, you know. And then I edit them myself, usually use my own music. So um it's been a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. So do you write them all? You write all the Highwayman stuff? Yeah. Well, yeah, she writes uh, a couple of them. But yeah, between she and I, yeah, we write them. They are yeah. They're amazing. And then you do the behind the scenes of Highway. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. On my Instagram, yeah. if people want to go to Instagram, you can see some of that stuff. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> you took, so, okay, so the Jetpack one, the behind the scenes, there's a, a part in it where you take a, a pretty nasty tumble. Was that, oh, yeah. Was that real? Man, that, yeah. That was when I was trying to experiment with the green screen. And uh, yeah, I put this little stump underneath me and then I just ate shit. It, it, it fell underneath me. Fortunately, I had these two trash cans on my back, which were the jetpack, and those totally broke my fall. And so I was like, oh, thank goodness. But um, yeah, when I looked at it afterward, I was like, ooh, that looks pretty bad. I wish I had just kept going. But yeah, that was fun. Oh, so did you stopped right after that? Oh, yeah, 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 immediately. Yeah. It looks really good though. The fall looks awesome. Yeah, no, it's a, it's pretty damn good fall. <laughs> right. I could have been paralyzed for life. But oh, yeah, no. it was a really really stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> what, was, what was the point of being on the stump? Because you don't want uh, any ground underneath you. You want all green. So it looks like you're, you're flying, you know? <laughs> right, right. It's that movie magic as uh, the highway. Yeah, race. yeah, there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> those are, they're so funny. And those are on Patreon and uh, YouTube. Yeah, yeah. You go to youtube.com uh, slash henlips and you can see my channel and it's got all the stuff on there. And there's a lot of, uh, there's like 30 episodes of the highway, man. So that for, to see all those, you'd have to go to the patreon.com slash highwayman show. And they're hilarious. It's completely <laughs> worth it. They are hysterical oh, thanks man. they are hysterical and then the other one that we did talk about is the cooking one so how oh yeah do you have a love of cooking you know what went back in 2011 I, I did the montreal comedy festival it was i thought pretty good sets but it was very lackluster there, there were so many big names there and everything i felt like a, the whole thing i didn't even make a dent and I, I was very depressed about it i was also going through a breakup mm. and just just generally speaking everything was bad and I was living in my bachelor apartment and every time I wanted to cook, I was also on a budget. So I, I would go to YouTube and just put like, you know, how do you grill asparagus or whatever, you know? And then it, it would just be like some person in their, uh, you know, shitty kitchen just teaching you how to do asparagus. And then I was watching these going, why are people doing this? Like, what is this? What's this need that people, and it was mostly like middle-aged men that looked like they were in their attic or something like that. And I was just <laughs> like, what is the need that people have to start teaching people stuff? And, uh, and they were so funny to me. I was like, I have to start making my own kitchen videos. And so I did, I did one, one morning and I almost couldn't get through it without a straight face. I was just laughing so hard. And my, I, I remember sending it to my buddy, Chris Fairbanks. And he said, uh, this is great, man. And I go, well, don't share it with anybody yet because I, I haven't cut it down. Cause I, I remember the YouTube videos were supposed to be only like three minutes or whatever. Otherwise it was pointless to put them on there. This was like six and a half minutes. I don't think he got the message and he's just started started posting it on Facebook and everything, but it went kind of viral in the comedy scene. There was like a couple thousand views and I had never had anything that big. And I was like, wow, this is great. So I did another one and uh, that was called Chili for One. And it was a little tighter. And uh, Sarah Silverman retweeted it or, or tweeted and said, this is my favorite cooking show or whatever. And then it got on Reddit and then it was hundreds of thousands of views. And I was like, wow. And then now it's over a million. Oh. So that was a really, yeah, that was kind of like my first uh, experience with this whole viral video thing. And uh, it was a lot of fun. So um, I, it, it was basically a second career after that, because then, then at the comedy clubs, I had people showing up that were just YouTube fans, you know, fans of the, the cooking videos. Yeah, it was crazy. Did they, so do they expect the cooking, Henry, or do they know what they're, they know they're getting? I don't think they knew exactly what they were going to get, but they were just like, you know, this is the guy who does 
YouTube cooking videos and then they'd watch and they, Oh, I get it. He's a stand up comic and he's got songs and everything like that, but it would bring people into the shows, which was cool. That's so crazy. It, it's the character is it's incredible. He's the most <laughs> awkward, but he thinks he's just the shit, just doing everything. I love it. I love it. Is that something you have always worked on or is that just something just, it would happened in the spur of the moment when you wanted to make the cooking video? Oh no. Yeah. I just, I was just improvising, you know, I just yeah. pointed the camera and just started sort of trying to do what they were doing in these videos, you know, right. but it was fun. <laughs> and then, and my, the Mike judge stuff never would have happened without it too. So that's absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that the moral of the story is you pretty much got to, uh, you know, keep putting stuff out there. Cause you never know, you know, I could have very easily just not done that that morning and, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, you just got to keep putting stuff out there, like what you're doing. You know, it's good. Right. How often are you putting out the those videos? Are you doing those every month? Uh, it's like four of them every month. Yeah. Nice. And, and they're on Patreon mostly. Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash highwayman show and then patreon.com slash Henry's Kitchen. Awesome. Hey man, uh, I I didn't realize that, <laughs> that I kept you this long. Uh, oh, I, that's all right. Yeah. So kind of flew by. It did, man. I really appreciate it. This is awesome. Uh, Absolutely, man. I really appreciate you taking some time and uh, hanging out. This is fun. We'll have to do it again. All right, Mike. Absolutely. And then maybe next time I can figure out some way to get, get the guitar out and do some songs. Maybe we can uh, figure out a way to plug it in or something like that. So uh, that'd be cool. Yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. That would be really fun. In the meantime, you can check out his songs. You can get them everywhere, like iTunes, Spotify. Oh, yeah. Spotify, all that. Just put Henry Phillips. Just say, hey, play Henry Phillips. It'll play God knows what it'll play, but it'll be on there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right, Henry, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Good to see you after all these years, too, man. It is. Yes. It's been a long time, hasn't it? You it popped has. up. You popped up, yeah, on my Facebook feed. I was like, oh. But I think you're still dodging my friendship request. Yeah, it's so awkward. I I, I honestly don't look at those. I literally don't. I I, I mean, the, <laughs> Facebook has, there's like hundreds of them. Mm. And Facebook has a limit. And then also, I don't know most of the people. And, and that's that was originally supposed to be just my my friends. I'll go in and look for yours and, and, and add it. But I just don't look at that section because it's intimidating. There's, there's hundreds of them. And it doesn't put them in an order. I mean, there's family members and stuff like that but i i just kind of figured you know i'm i'm pretty accessible overall you can send me messages whatever like that but uh i don't really post much that i don't post on i have a fan page too on there henry phillips you know but i'll i'll, I'll go ahead and look for it and push approve <laughs> but uh i appreciate that yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right man i didn't i didn't know you were on there <laughs> hey so. hey that's all right that's all right i was just uh i I was looking because I like to link it when I post it, you know, link it. And I oh, okay. It. So I think we, I think we have to be friends on it to do that. I think. Okay. You know? Well, there, there's also the fan page, which is more the public. That, okay. More the public. Oh, okay. One, so link that one. Yeah, yeah. It started out when Facebook. I just got on there, and it and it became a an amalgamation of both friends and family, and then also fans. There's like five thousand people on there. Then I set up a fan page, and so there's like five thousand people there, but a lot of them are the same people. So it, yeah, it's it's all kind of a mess. Right. I was hoping Facebook would eventually just sort of go away and then we'd move on to Instagram or whatever, but it's still there. It's not going anywhere. I know. I know. <laughs> I, I'm kind of hoping that they'll all go away at some point. Yeah. Let's go back. Go back to where it used to be. It was fun. Right. <laughs> I, it's a necessary evil though, you know, and kind of what Oh, absolutely. Have, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, if it weren't for that, then I wouldn't have videos, you know, I wouldn't have, yeah. I wouldn't be able to learn how to hold a camera, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So I still embrace a lot of it, you know, right. and we can send direct messages to people that we are fans of, you know, it's, it's amazing, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I guess as much as I bitch about it, it is pretty incredible. Yeah. Right. All right. Yeah. Okay, man. All right, Mike. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, bud. We'll see you later. All right. See you. See you.